0: Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Dietrich is a violinist and entrepreneurial leader in the professional arts world who founded and serves as executive and artistic director of the Apollo Chamber Players, which is an internationally acclaimed chamber music ensemble serving millions around the world in the realm of creative, programmatic performance and through commissions of multicultural new music. In addition to Apollo, Matt is also a frequent guest speaker on leadership in the arts, awards funding through the Texas Commission for the Arts, and runs Dietrich Arts, which contracts ensembles for charity and corporate events. He serves as concertmaster of the Symphony of Southeast Texas and has served as soloist and musician for ensembles including Houston Grand Opera and Ballet and the period ensemble Mercury and was awarded the Chamber Music America Residency Award. Matt and Apollo can be heard on Navona Records, Azika Records, and Parma Recordings. Matt, it's so awesome to have you on One Symphony today. I wanted to start out by asking you about your upbringing. Both of your parents, I understand, were musicians. One of your first goals was that you wanted to play the violin in space, which I I find astounding. And I'm curious how that is working out. And one of the things you said is you get your skills from your parents. And I'm curious, what did your parents impart to you, not only musically, but also in terms of entrepreneurship and the skills that you've used to build Apollo Chamber Players?
1: Devin, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Um, Hello to your audience out there. I love your question. My musical background, my teacher mother was a classically trained violinist. She played the first class music. My preacher father, who played the guitar, banjo, harmonica, mountain dulcimer, didn't read music very well, played the coach class music. I, I think that my, my parents, you know, were fusing different musical genres there, you know, just as, as who they were as people. So I started violin when I was three years old. I have two younger brothers as well that also played the violin. My mother started us, but she was smart and we had some other teachers pretty much from the get go. And now as a, as a father myself who's trying to teach a four-year-old, I know exactly <laughs> why she did that. But my family, as we were growing up, we were sort of known as the Dietrich von Trapp family. So my, my dad being the minister, my mom being the, the teacher and the violinist, we did programs for community events, for churches, that sort of thing. I think that that experience, you, you know, there's actually two really important things that I got from that. It's being comfortable in front of people on a stage, which has served me very well with my career path, but also putting on a brave face no matter what is going on in your personal life. There's some stories of my family and I where we would be all fighting and bickering during rehearsals or, you know, you got three boys that are are growing and my parents trying to keep us in check. And even up to like a minute before we would go on stage, we would be bickering and yelling. And then we go on a stage and right? Like that, we're in performance mode. So especially now, you know, in a string quartet and and what I do professionally, like that's just, I look back and I see how important that is because, you know, sometimes there's a lot going on in your life and and you got to forget that in a way when you go on stage and perform for other people.
0: And there's never any conflict in the string quartet,
1: right? There's never any conflict. We're always close (laughs) friends. Um, Our group has been, you know, in this formation has been together for almost a decade now. So I I like to think that we're, we're, we've pretty adept at conflict resolution, um, which is another skill that I must say that I imparted from my, my father as a minister. Um, I also think that that's very important for what I do now, too, you know, performing in front of people, speaking in front of people and audiences. I, I saw my father preaching every Sunday for 18 years and pouring his soul out in a way to um, the church community. And I feel that I do that in you know a different way through music, but it's identical in terms of wanting to connect with people and the service uh, uh, kind of aspect along with that. So you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit with what, what Apollo does, but I feel like I'm doing exactly what I need to do in my life. Um, it's a perfect kind of encapsulation of of my parents and uh, their personalities and their talents as well.
0: That's cool. And, and and I know, and I've watched you speak a lot in recorded live streams or uh, in interviews. And I think that's a very important skill that a lot of musicians or maybe classical musicians don't always think about. It's not only how you interpret and communicate the music, but for audiences these days, I mean, we're always trying to bring people in. And I think, you know, with a lot of your multicultural endeavors, a lot of your crossover of genres that you do, it's easier to do that. But also, I think in terms of presenting the music to audiences is something you you do very well. Can you kind of talk about how that started? Um, You know, was that something you were doing before Apollo? Was that something that came out of Apollo? Does the string quartet kind of leave you as the spokesperson uh, to kind of represent the music from an oration perspective?
1: Well, I always like to think that we're telling a story no matter what we're playing. And and you're right, like our, our programs are very programmatic for highlighting a specific culture. Um, Or if we're connecting a couple of ideas, I mean, I think one example just right off the bat that comes to my mind of a a concert that did this, that really did help connect communities and cultures through globally inspired music, which is our mission, uh, was our Phoenix Ascending concert in 2018. We uh, featured music by a Vietnam veteran composer named Kima Williams and juxtaposed that with some new music inspired by traditional Vietnamese instruments and folk music featuring Vanessa Vo who's a really wonderful Dan Bao player that's a one string zither instrument so I thought that was you know uh, just kind of combining the idea and, and maybe you know music being a force for reconciliation between you know these two countries and cultures that were at war with one another for many years to bring the audience along on that journey through the music I think it's something really special and important that we do I think something else that we do is introducing pieces giving a little bit of a background on them Now, post-COVID, we have an upcoming concert and we integrate video excerpts and interviews along with our live performance now, which I think is, it wouldn't have happened pre-COVID. You know, it's something that we've kind of innovated since then.
0: Speaking of of Kimo Williams, he's an incredible composer. Uh, You know, I know his fanfare for life well for orchestra. This is your album, With Malice Toward None, which comes from the Lincoln Second Inaugural Address, uh, where you collaborated, obviously, with Kimo Williams for the tribute to John Lewis, um, and also electric violinist Tracy Silverman was involved in that. Can you talk about the kind of creative planning that went into that and the reception?
1: Sure. And just to go back a little bit farther, we, we completed in 2020, during COVID, a project called 20 by 2020, which was an initiative to commission 20 new folk music and multicultural works by the end of the decade. We had no idea, obviously, that COVID was going to happen. The 19th and 20 commissions were canceled in March and May of 2020. We ended up doing a virtual festival of all the commissions later that year, last fall, that featured live recordings of the final two commissions so using that and kind of the success of that project as our basis I you know was trying to find some other project ideas and obviously multicultural commissioning is what Apollo was all about so when I went when I uh, approached Kima Williams we had already played a couple of his works in this Vietnam concert that I that I mentioned I wanted to connect somehow a new commission with the 250th anniversary of Beethoven which we all kind of forgot about this last year because of COVID. I think that every composer and every performer, classical trained performer in some way is inspired by Beethoven and, and what he was about. His ethos as a, as, comp- as, a, as a composer and his genius. I mean, everybody knows that Beethoven was a genius. So I asked Kimo to write a piece reflecting that. This was about March of, of uh, 2020. A few months went by and of course the killing of George Floyd happened in May of 2020. And I remember I contacted Chemo a few weeks after that and I said, you know, I don't know what you're going through in terms of your artistic creativity right now, but if you want to integrate that into the piece somehow, please do that. He got back to me with basically the idea of this with malice toward none idea for the piece. And I think that it's so resonant with where we are today in society. Lincoln was trying to heal divided nation after the civil war. We have a lot of political turmoil, uh, social turmoil that continues to this day. And I think that the idea of with malice toward none is timeless and is reflected in this commission.
0: 20 by 2020 project, which is incredible. I think that started, what year did that start? 2014. That's a few premieres per season and a really cool, ambitious goal to set. All these new commissions, which basically speaks to your mission statement. Can you talk about that process where you, you know, contacting composers, like how do you determine which composers you want to integrate into this kind of project and are there any kind of lessons learned since that's now a completed project?
1: We knew we wanted to be as diverse as possible with our composers and the cultures that we represented through this music from the beginning but in 2014 you know we we, had, we were kind of riding high from a Carnegie Hall debut in 2013 and our first album that came out European Folkscapes, in early 2014 as well and this was kind of a the next step but You know, we weren't really, really well known outside of Houston or Texas until this project got off the ground. So I, you know, took it upon myself to kind of cold call, cold email a lot of these composers. The first composer that we cold called was Libby Larson, fantastic American composer. You know, and this was about six months before we wanted to do the premiere. And she said, hey, I love this idea, but I just don't have time right now. I need, you know, at least one or two years lead time. And, uh, and, and we had just won this couple thousand dollars from an award here in Houston. I said, Hey, this is the only thing we want to use this money for is seed money for our project and for your commission. So I I kept, I kept with it and she finally relented and said, okay, I can do it. And, (laughs) and it it was very serendipitous too, because the, the piece that she wrote is called Sorrow Song and Jubilee. It's based on the spiritual swing low sweet chariot and it connects uh, Dvořák with Henry Thacker Burleigh and how Dvořák used spirituals in his music. In fact, I guess in 2008 or nine, Olivia was a, a fellow at the Smithsonian Library of Congress, and she had studied the music of Henry Thacker Burleigh. Huh. So you know, here's this random <laughs> musician from Houston coming and saying, "Hey, can you you know connect Burleigh with with Dvořák?" And I think you know maybe that was a uh, preordained in, in in a sense that uh, she was going to be the first composer of our project. So we got very lucky there. So she she launched the project for us. And after that, you know, things kind of fell into place. I mean, after you start, you know, telling other composers, hey, Libby Larson was our, our you know, helped launch this this project. And then if you have good ideas too. So I, I would think for any musicians and ensembles that are looking to reach out to composers for commissioning projects, have a little bit of an idea, give them a kernel of what you want to, to go off of and, and not just say, hey, we want to right Composes a piece for string quartet or piano or, or whatever. I think that the creative process is much more meaningful if both parties are are involved in that. So that that's my one suggestion that I have for groups that are interested in commissioning. The other one is to allow enough time, so patience. And another quick story here: in 2015, we had you know just a year after we started the project. Jennifer Higdon was giving a premiere here at the Houston symphony. Uh, I had chatted with her a little bit on an email and she, she was just so kind to respond to me. She, she hadn't heard of me or Apollo. And then I remember it was about an hour before the concert on a Sunday afternoon. I was at home. She Facebook messaged me and she said, "Um, you know, if you want to come to my Houston symphony premiere, I'd be happy to talk to you there. So I got dressed. I went, I went to the concert hall and there was a chat before the concert that I got to, you know, See her in, and uh, I asked a couple of questions. And then after that, I got to talk to her, and I think that you know making that personal connection with her right there was very important. A couple of days after that, you know, we kept on corresponding. She said, I, I want to be a part of this, but I'm writing two operas right now, so if you're patient, if you have the luxury of time, uh, maybe I can get to your commission in about five years. I said that's perfect. And then you know, as the project evolved, it just worked out that she was. going to be the uh, 20th composer uh, of the project, um, which she was. So she was one of those that we had to get on the docket very, very early. Another quick story is our commission by Leo Brower, the famed Cuban composer. We've always loved his music. and I remember working on his guitar quintet, and he's just a natural kind of fusion of, of, of Cuban folk music, of Bartokian styles. And nobody writes like him. I mean, Leo Brower is just such a magnificent composer, one of a kind. So I cold emailed him. I didn't hear back. I totally forgot. So this was like 2015 I emailed him. January of 2019, so four years later, I get a response. It says, Maestro Brower is ready to write for Apollo Chamber Players. I totally forgot that I even wrote him that email. <laughs> And this, of course, Mon and he said, Hey, well, I want to do this this year. And then we, we, we actually premiered it in September of 2018 as part of a Brazilian Beats concert with some Houston ballet dancers. And it's on our Within Earth album. It's just really special.
0: The first American chamber ensemble to play in Cuba since the embargo was relaxed. Uh, And you got to work with a couple really awesome uh, composers Arthur Gottschalk, uh, Maureen Reyes, Gottschalk's images from Cuba. And one of the things you said was that the audience, when you did this concert in Houston with a very strong Cuban population and uh, a very diverse, more diverse audience than maybe your average classical um, string quartet performance, you said the audience was chuckling at the jokes embedded in the music, maybe because of the folk idioms, maybe because of some of the inside musical jokes that they might've understood. Can you maybe talk about that experience of playing in Cuba, but also maybe how musical humor and folk music or Cuban music in this case, how that differs from musical humor that we might think of in Joseph Haydn or Beethoven even for that
1: matter? That, that's such a great question and point, uh, Devin. Thanks for asking. So Art Gottschalk was uh, also a professor of mine at Rice when I was a student, composition professor. He's been kind of a mentor to Apollo as we've branched out and commissioned. He has a wonderful sense of humor himself. So it's no surprise that this is embedded in into his composition. But then in addition to that, I think Cuban folk music, in particular the songs that he used for this piece, the first movement is titled Menacero, which is based on the Peanut Venner song, the protest song, and then there's a cojira, a uh, beautiful waltz, more serene movement, slow movement. And then the last movement, timba, is kind of what it, salsa is to Mexico. I think what makes it humorous is that there's silence embedded into the piece. I also remember a professor of mine at Rice uh, named Richard Lavenda, who's a composer, telling me that part of Mozart's genius was his utilization of silence, right? Because I think silence is a little bit of a reset, and it allows people in the moment to react. So with Kuba, there's just there's this one section in it's in the first movement, and the harmonies are clashing, and it's got this quality of it's telling a joke to it. And when we premiered it, it was so unexpected that people would react the way they did. I mean, there was chuckling, and and you know, and I think we were all caught off guard for a second. It's really cool. I mean, I, I that kind of moment you'd never forget. You know what I mean? When, when the audience is so deeply kind of connected to what you're doing in the in, in music, that it takes you out of your performance space and, you, and, and it breaks that fourth wall. Now, when we play it, we expect a response there, and we allow a little bit more time for ourselves to come back in. But that's the kind of thing that the more that we perform new music, like that's the kind of thing that I, I want to bring out, uh, you know, the humanity in, in all of our pieces and in the composers.
0: One of the things that you've talked about is the idea of the musical ecotone, which is, you know, an ecological concept that is kind of describing a difference between like two different biomes. For example, the lakes meeting the riverbeds or the sunset meeting the night. Can you talk about how that applies to what you do and what, you know, many other ensembles sort of on the cutting edge uh, can do or what, what, what the potential could be? Uh, to, to where musical genres intersect and integrate.
1: Yeah, I love this concept of musical ecotone. I remember learning about that when I was a boy in school and just thinking, you know, how fascinating it, it was in nature where you have all these really wonderful connections. So I think it relates to, to our 20 by 2020 project and our multicultural commissioning because we're, we are exploring this synthesis, this place where different genres intersect and integrate. And I think that's really where the magic happens. This really hit home with our uh, Mel Harmony program, uh, where we intersected Indian classical music with Western classical music, with a really wonderful performer composer named Chitravina and Ravakiran. So this, you know, Indian classical music, Carnatic music, which is from the southern part of India, is based on melody, and so it's more horizontal. Contrast this to Western classical music, which is based on harmony, all in harmony, right? So so it's more vertically integrated music. So completely opposite kind of systems, right? And so Ravi came up with a system called melharmony, which is basically the connection of this, the, you know, the the ecotone uh, connection between these two very different uh, musical forms and systems. Our permissions by him are titled Cosmic Knowledge and Mouthful of Universe, The titles of his compositions are just so imaginative, and and the music is as well. So we we actually commissioned these for Apollo's 10th anniversary in 2017, premiered these in downtown Houston at uh, one of the larger halls, Zilka Hall. It was a wonderful experience. I have always been inspired by what Yudi Menemwin did with Ravi Shankar and kind of their collaborations. And I remember watching a lot of videos there. And in fact, Annabelle and I, who's the other violinist of Apollo and my wife, we made a trip to Dallas, Texas in 2017 to meet with Ravi. That's where he lives half of the time of the year. And then the other half, he lives in Chennai, India. We, you know, We sat down in, in, in his living room there and we just explored our different systems and did some improvisation. And that was a crash course for, for us in particular, just to kind of grasp this entirely new different system. And six months later, when we did the premiere, it was great that we had done that because there was some improvisation in, in the concert um as well we also did uh, Terry Riley's famous In C with uh, string quintet and then Ravi playing chitravina and then this really wonderful percussionist from from Houston as well um, i think that's the only recording out there of of In C with chitravina at least as far as i'm aware but it's it's pretty cool
0: you must be pretty familiar playing all these different idioms with the art of improvisation at least more so than your average classical music concert master.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, again, attribute that to my parents and to my experiences playing our programs growing up. A lot of times I would be the one who would improvise harmonies when my younger brothers were playing the, the melody lines to, and just because they were younger, right? They, it was easier to, to, to play the melody lines. So I would just improvise harmony. So um, improvising is something that's not taught in music school. I think maybe it should be, and, you know, one of your recent guests, Tracy Silverman, would say, absolutely, music school should, should teach improvisation. So I wholeheartedly agree. I think that in itself, improvisation is a great skill to have, but it also enhances the way you perform notated music, too. So, it, I mean, it's a symbiosis for sure. <laughs> ¶¶
0: a documentary that's come out called Moonshot and an upcoming album around that. The name of your chamber group is Apollo. You know, also we have the Apollo 11 moon landing that you're kind of focusing around with an incredible Chickasaw composer that I've worked with as well, Jared M. Pichachaha Tate, and then the astronaut John Harrington. Can you talk about that documentary and anything that we can be looking for?
1: For sure, Devin, and actually, we can uh, circle back to your initial question about desiring to be the first person to play the violin in space. <laughs> I always wanted to be an astronaut since I was a young boy. I was fascinated by space. I was particularly fascinated by the moon landing, the Apollo project. I went to space camp actually in 1993 in oh, Hutchinson, wow. Kansas, cool. um, and you know, I remember I remember sitting there in the in the classroom learning about space and things like that. I remember the director asking us to raise their hand if, who wanted to be an astronaut, right? And I just remember thinking, I put, I shot my hand up and I was like, of course I want to be. Doesn't everybody here want to be an astronaut? But it was funny because not every kid there raised their hand and I, I still find that a little bit unusual. But anyway, I think that that experience opens your mind to the possibilities of life even more than just wanting to become an astronaut, right? So fast forward to the formation of Apollo. It is definitely connected to Houston, Texas, which is Space City you know, a city of bold and big ideas of innovation. I think people may overlook that a little bit, but um, even to this day, you know, NASA's here. And I think I have been able to live out my childhood dream of becoming an astronaut through Apollo Chamber Players, and particularly our Moonstrike Commission by Jared Tate. We wanted to do something to honor the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing in 2019. I reached out to Jared. He was Incredible in his ideas and his generosity, we, we we exchanged some ideas, and I was like, "Hey, Jared, do you think we could do something with narration? And maybe there's some American Indian moon legends we could reference in here?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, there's there's tons of interesting stories." And then he came back and said, "Hey, Matt, guess what? I think I found a narrator. I'm great friends with the astronaut John Harrington, who was the first Native American to fly in space in 2002." He helped build some of the space station. He lived with his family here in Houston when he was working at NASA. Now he lives in Montana. He is the narrator in this particular project. In the premiere in 2019, we also premiered a piece by a Turkish composer titled What's Her Face, The Moon or Sunlight that has reference to Turkish folk music. So I think, again, you know, it wasn't totally NASA focused, this this particular program. We had the, the American Indian element and then also the Turkish folk element too. And uh, it's just another kind of program that I think encapsulates what we do best. So the Moonshot documentary kind of emerged from us wanting to capture what we did in our 20 by 2020 project. So the Moonstrike Commission in particular is kind of the heart of the documentary. But COVID happened and kind of a response to COVID is integrated into the story and the documentarian here. His name is Jeffrey Mills. He initially proposed, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minute documentary, but it blossomed into something, you know, a 70 minute documentary and it covers our our history, our origin story, a lot of our commissions up through our response to COVID. So we're currently shopping that out to distributors and hopefully it will be available on a streaming platform in your home very soon. Very exciting. Well, if you're going
0: through Amazon Prime, maybe you can uh, shout out to Jeff Bezos to see if you can get a seat on the next rocket that goes up there and uh, bring your <laughs> fiddle.
1: <laughs> That's right. Somehow I've got to get on Bezos's short list there of people that go to space. I understand why castigating billionaires for wanting to go to space is a thing, but in my mind, I think it—I think it's great because they're paving the way for you know the average person to go to space eventually. And I, I also think that with the billions that these billionaires have, they're giving to charities, they, they're they they're allowed to use some of their money to, you know, for their pet projects too. Um, in this case, I think their pet projects are going to help humanity. So um, I, get a little, I get a little upset when people are saying, well, you know, we should be using our money for something else. It's a waste of money going to space. But
0: anyway. Well, that's a great shout out. So Jeff Bezos, are you listening? Matt Dietrich supports <laughs> yeah, right. your cause and he's looking for that seat. Wholeheartedly. Another really awesome project is called The Library Voyage, where you are trying to play concerts in all the public libraries in uh, Houston, Harris County uh, by 2024.
1: So as to your point, Devin, Apollo Chamber Players, we're not just a string quartet, right? We are something that's embedded in our community here. I think we're an important part of the fabric. So what better way to reach as much of our community than, than to perform in all the public libraries. So in, in Harris County, Harris County is I think the second or third largest county in America. There's 26 branches, a part of the Harris County Public Library System, which encompasses Houston. Our goal is to perform in all the libraries and program music that's connected to that particular library community. So for instance, we did a concert. We launched it last month in October at a library in Katy, Texas. It has a large Venezuelan com- community. So we invited a Venezuelan violinist named Eddie Marcano who escaped the political turmoil of his home country and emigrated to Houston three years ago or so. And in fact, a little side note, Eddie Marcano taught Gustavo Dudamel violin lessons. Wow, that's crazy. When they were back in Venezuela as part of El Sistema. That was a great way to connect with that particular subset of of a cultural community in Houston. Next week, we are doing a concert for Native American History Month featuring a couple movements of our Moonstrike Commission. We can't bring Jared or John to Houston every time we do it, so we found a, a local actor that will do the narration named Sarah Hill, and she's a member of the Blackfeet tribe. In addition to that, we'll connect that with our Piazzolla Centennial concert. We have a, a wonderful Ben composer and performer named Hector del Cuarto that's coming up, and he wrote us a new piece called Trace of Time, inspired by tango music and his experience of Passage of time during COVID. He'll be our guest for that library voyage program, and then we'll do a main stage concert on November twentieth.
0: And that's your Piazzola Centennial, which is part of your fourteenth season with Open Arms, where you have incredibly enriching and kind of diverse programming that I think many classical music organizations can really take note, including you have the Jennifer Higdon at the end of the season, and you've got this Adolphus Hale Stork coming up very soon. is there anything else on your 14th season with open arms, it couldn't be a better season theme in my opinion, that you wanna
1: highlight? Yeah, thanks. We started the season with, uh, with mouse Toward None. Since we had never done that commission for a live audience, Tracy Silverman came down and we, we did uh, that, that performance in September. The next concert is our Piazzolla Centennial. In December, we have a Holiday Voyage concert. This will be our fifth annual Holiday Voyage concert, which we want to connect different holiday traditions and cultures. In this particular one, we have a new commission by a younger African-American composer named Brian Nabors. This will be a piece inspired by Kwanzaa traditions, and it will feature Wayne Ashley, who's a member of the Grammy-winning Houston Chamber Choir here in Houston. We're also excited about our concert in February at Holocaust Museum Houston, titled La Palomba which uh, is, is Ladino for the dove, like a symbol of peace. We have two new commissions in this program, one titled La Paloma by Isabel Gans, who's a Sephardic Ladino scholar here in Houston. And then we have another piece for string quartet, voice and spoken word by John Cornelius, who's a composer at Prairie View A&M University here in Houston. That commission will feature Outspoken Bean, who is Houston's newest poet laureate. So I think that one in particular not really experimented too much with spoken word in our commissions, except for the Moonstrike that had narration. But I'm really excited about those commissions in particular, premiering them in the Holocaust Museum, which is a place that's promoting peace and trying to change the narrative in society today.
0: Well, Matt, it's been such an honor speaking with you, and I really appreciate your putting all these amazing programs out there, You know, not only to bring all this incredible diversity of music to people, but also with the intent of bridging the divides in our society. People can check out if you're in the Houston area, uh, the 14th season of Apollo. And also it's probably going to be online. People can stream it and I'll have information in the show notes of how to connect with Apollo chamber players and how to donate. Matt, it's been such a joy talking to you and I'm looking forward to hearing about the composers you have for your next project, whether it's 30 by 2030 or whatever you end up calling it. (laughs) Really excited about what you guys are doing.
1: Thank you so much, Devin. It was a pleasure to be here and we'll see everybody virtually or in the concert hall soon.
0: Thank you for joining us on One Symphony and thanks to Matt Dietrich for sharing Apollo's mission and story. All works were performed by the Apollo Chamber Players. You heard Sheremo Esh Romanka from the album European Folk Songs. We Will Sing One Song by Eve Baglarian, includes Arsene Petrosian, Pedjman Hidati, and Joan Der With Malice Towards None by Kimo Williams features electric violinist Tracy Silverman. The String Quartet number 6, Nostalgia de las Montañas, is by Leo Brouwer. Imagines de Cuba is by Arthur Gottschalk. Themes of Armenian Folk Songs by Komitas Vardepet was arranged by S. Aslamazian and Matthew Dietrich. And Apollo was joined by Joan Derhofsepian. You can check out Apollo's performances and donate to the cause at apollochamberplayers.org. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to lend your support to the podcast. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the Music.